Well, before I begin this morning, I have some good news I want to share with you, and that is Pastor Mike and Dana became grandparents again yesterday morning. And so I do not want to scoop the lead pastor, so I'm sure there'll be pictures forthcoming, and he'll be here to tell you all about it. But he is on his way with Dana to Southern California to meet their new grandchild, and we give praise for that this morning. I was already scheduled to speak this morning, and it's a privilege for me to be here with you. And in fact, I'll be closing out next week the Summer of Songs series, and the psalm that's I'm speaking about today, I'm going to also refer to it next week. It's that impactful. You know, of the 150 Psalms, approximately a third of them do not have a designated author. This Psalm is one for which the writer remains anonymous as well. Some have guessed that it's David that penned the words, but that has never been verified. We don't know the first name. We certainly don't know the last name of this individual, but we can guess that his middle name must have been adversity because of the challenging encounters that he had faced. Evidently, he'd faced quite a number of trials during the course of his lifetime. It was written by a believer who had enemies and needed the Lord's help and protection, and it serves as a template for us today. Now, you may not have enemies today, but who among us does not need the Lord's help and protection? This psalm looks forward in confidence because it looks backwards as a source of that confidence because the believer remembers everything the Lord has done. When it comes to adversity and our response, there's a number of takeaways that we can get from Psalm 71, and it begins right away in the first verse. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. The psalmist's enemies were sure that the Lord would forsake him, but he was confident that wouldn't be the case. It reminds me of Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, when the Lord says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we, with confidence, can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? He continues in verse 2, in your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me, Lord. Turn your ear to me and save me. You know, righteousness is mentioned five times in this passage. Not only in verse 2, as I just read, but if you want to write this down, it's in verse 15, 16, 19, and 24. So this makes it a key theme throughout Psalm 71. It refers not only righteousness to the Lord's character, but also in his faithfulness in keeping his word. The psalmist makes his appeal based on God's character. And Paul reminds us of how important that is. In 2 Timothy, we read, if we are unfaithful, he is still yet faithful because he cannot deny who he is. The faith we place in the Lord Almighty, I want you to know this morning, is always justified. I like what Thomas Horn said. He said the psalmist so often begins his prayer with a declaration of his faith, which is to the soul in affliction what an anchor is to a ship in distress. This is the foundation. This is the basis for the confidence that he expresses. This is what he knows to be true. This is what you and I can count on to be true today and for all of our tomorrows. If there's one thing we can be sure of, it's that God is our anchor. I love the old Christian contemporary song that has these words in it. The anchor holds, though the ship is battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas. The anchor holds in spite 
of the storm. The troubles described by the psalmist in verses 1 and 2 were also pictured as floods of waters. See, in other words, he needed an anchor because he was in the midst of a storm. Storms are three things. Storms are inevitable, they're unpredictable, and they're indiscriminate. They're inevitable because they have a commonality that we all share. You know, we try to cocoon ourselves. We try to take control of situations. But the reality is we cannot escape the storms of life. Storms are unpredictable because they occur unexpectedly. How many times have you said, boy, I did not see that one coming? I mean, there are a reason why we can sometimes pinpoint with great accuracy where we were and what we were doing and when it was because there was a moment when we were going about maybe minding our own business with the mundane things in life when all of a sudden a disruption to that normality occurred, an event that we never expected. Storms are also indiscriminate because they are no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter your financial status, your position. It does not matter the geographic location and where we reside. No one is exempt from storms. They transcend every demographic classification. Jesus said this is the case. He says this in Matthew 5, 45. He says literally and proverbially that the rain falls on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. There's one other attribute that I would add with regard to storms. They are personal, regardless of the issue. For you, it may be relational. For some of you, it may be financial. For others, it may be about your job, your vocation, your profession. It might be something related to your health. It might be related to your children. It might be related to your spouse. It may be any other thing, but the one thing for sure is they're tailored specifically to you. And usually, they highlight an area of weakness. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we don't seem to be tested in areas that we're strong. We're tested in areas where we're vulnerable, where we're weak, where we're susceptible. Some are, we have in common. Some are very specific to me, and they're specific to you as well. But the bottom line is, we can't descend into a bunker, and we can't climb to the high grounds. We cannot escape storms. No one does. So we shouldn't be surprised when they occur. We can't prevent them, but we can be prepared for them, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Among other things, you know, hindsight, they say, is twenty twenty, and that's all in good, but I'd rather have foresight so I can have an expectation of what is to come so I can be prepared in advance so I don't get sucker punched or blindsided, whatever analogy you want to use, so I can handle it well. Some storms are bound to occur when we express that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That profession sometimes can come at a cost. When and if that's the case, I want you to know here today that we will make an appeal very similar to the psalmist. What he said was this in verse 4, Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel, for my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. Now, we don't know why they were speaking against him. We don't know why they wanted to kill him, but it's possible that it could be because of his faith. You know, the fact is, when we chose to be Christ followers, we knew that there was a chance of potential stormy seas. 
In Matthew 10, 34, Christ said this. He said, I didn't come to make life cozy. In my own experience, I've shared this before, but many of you have not heard this. In the secular world, I was brought into an office one day by a boss and told him that if you mention Jesus Christ one more time, you're going to be fired. At the same point in time, he dismissed Christ's name being used in vain over and over and over again in that workplace. For those who profess Christ as their Savior, there's a cost of discipleship, a progression of trouble that we can anticipate when we stand for the one who's deemed so controversial in this world. And Jesus told us it was coming. The first thing that can happen is we can be hated. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. And I might contend this, if everyone likes you, maybe it's because you have not made it visible that you are a Christ follower. That's a sign that sometimes we wear we're like, we're, like we're literally hanging a sign around our neck. And we're going to talk about signs next week. But that sign of Christ follower is what identifies us to the king and it is also what draws the attention and sometimes the ear of those people that are around us. Second thing that can happen, Jesus continues, is we can be persecuted for our faith. Remember what I told you, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what will they do? They will persecute you also. And lastly, there's always the possibility that we could lose our life based on that relationship that we profess. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 16, Jesus says this, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering this service to God. Do you kind of think maybe that time might be here? They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. See, although Christians have been martyred for their faith for centuries, not only has that rate not decreased, it is accelerated. It has increased over the last 100 years. Speaking to a group of bishops and priests and nuns at a gathering at the Cathedral of San Lorenzo, Pope Francis said this, let's not forget that today there are more Christian martyrs than in ancient times than in the early days of the church. And he's absolutely correct. In the last decade alone, we estimate nearly one million men and women have been executed because of their Christian faith. And it's why we need to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe. Until Christ himself returns, the hatred of Christians will never cease and the persecution is not isolated on foreign mission fields. Michael Novak says out loud what many have kept to themselves. There's one acceptable form of bigotry left in polite society in America, and that's anti-Christianity. On the home front, yes, we're less likely to die a martyr's death. But we have, and we will certainly continue to, experience intolerance from those who oppose our Christian faith. All the while, while they scream for tolerance for every other ideology. The hypocrisy is truly astounding and ironic. But I want to encourage you also because Jesus encouraged us later in chapter 16 of John. He said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If your faith is the basis for any trouble 
in your life today, I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to take heart, stay strong, and realize that the Lord will deliver you. See, life is a series of storms, and I've mentioned this before, but I, it bears repeating. You're in one of three places today. You've either just come out of a storm, and you're very thankful. You're in the middle of the storm right now as I speak, or you're about to go into a storm. See, the psalmist makes it very clear. In verse 20, he says, Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. See, storms are continual, but they're not constant. Storms come in waves. There will be a minimum this year, I want you to know, of three crises in your life. A minimum of three crises. But a crisis isn't necessarily bad. It's how we handle the crisis that determines the outcome of where we go. We need training so that we have a proper response to those crises because they're going to occur. You know, many of us know the verse, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And we rightfully attribute that to the relationship between a parent and a child. But are we not children of a heavenly father? So does that not also address us at the same point in time? We also need to be trained because we go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity through that type of training. Aren't we more apt to pay attention when the waters are not tranquil than when they are? When adversity strikes, our natural inclination is to do what? Take matters into our own hands. That's all of us. That's what we were born into. It's a natural instinct. And yet when we become a child of God, that very first step is what? To turn to Him in prayer. And even then, when we turn to Him in prayer, we do so in an immature way, but a natural way, and He expects it because we pray what? God, make it go away. Father, make it stop. Lord, get me out of this. As we begin to mature, we go to the Father in a different manner. We go to him and say this, Lord, what is it you want to teach me in this circumstance? Father, I give you thanks, not for, but while I'm in that circumstance. Lord, how can I be a blessing? How can you use me for what I'm going through? If we're wise, we'll learn that lesson, whatever it might be, once. But we're children. Sometimes it takes repeated lessons and repeated storms. Most of the time, he doesn't get us immediately out of whatever you're going through. But he promises lessons of how we can weather the storm. Like an athlete, we can be trained to handle it properly and successfully. And here's the first lesson. He equips us and draws us to him. So we turn to him in hope and turn to him in trust. That's how we weather the storm. The psalmist said this, be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. We always have access is the lesson here. Our father is open for business 24-7, 365. He's available, turn to him. The psalmist continues, for you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust. He learned it somehow. He learned it some way. You know, commercials always promote items and they say something like this. In trials, this product has proven to be effective. Do they not? Don't we learn that we rely on things that have stood tests, that have stood trials, that they have more credibility, that we have more faith, that we have more trust, that we have more hope in whatever that may be? 
Well, this writer of Psalm 71 is promoting something like this. I will hope continually. People are out to kill him. And he says, I will hope continually. We turn to him when we realize we have no control over the difficulties in life, but he, our heavenly father, has a proven track record. The second way that he trains us to weather the storm is this. He reminds us that it's only for a season. Now, when you're in the midst of the storm, it seems like it will last forever, correct? And that's how the enemy attacks us between our ears. So we buy into a lie and try to reduce that amount of hope that we have. But it's just a fallacy. When you look back at some of the trials that you've had, you know there was a starting point, but you also recognize there was a period of expiration at the other end. And the one today, the one tomorrow is no different. The psalmist in 145 verse 15 says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. He determines when and where. And my gray hair and the writer of Psalm 71 can attest to this. We know the saying, the Lord is rarely early, but he's never what? Late. He's never late. It just seems like it. It just seems like it because we want it to stop sometimes. But he's got a plan. He shows up in the nick of time. I had a friend on the coaching staff with me at Boise State University that was fired one year. And obviously, first of all, if you're a coach, you've always, everyone's been fired at one point in time. But he's fired and looking for a job. So he and his wife are empty nesters, so they moved back to Eugene, Oregon, because that's where their family was. He looked for jobs for a number of months. Nothing came up. Then all of a sudden, he had a chance to interview for a position at Cal Berkeley. Thought it went well, but unfortunately, he did not get that position. So they remained in Eugene. Well, over the next three months, his wife's father, his father-in-law, grew gravely ill, ill to the point that he would not recover. But every day, his wife got to spend quality time with her dad before he passed. One week after he passed away, this friend of mine got a call from the same coach at Cal Berkeley. Unbeknownst to him, another job had just opened on his staff. He didn't see that guy leaving, and this was the perfect position for him. And he hired my friend for that position. Had he not been fired, they wouldn't have moved back to Eugene. Had he been hired the first time at Cal Berkeley, they would have left Eugene. But instead, his wife to this day thanks God for that storm because of the time she got to spend on earth with her father. The third way that he works to train us to weather the storm is he promises us its help is on the way. The three R's I call them, rest, reward, and restoration. The three R's. What will the Lord do? We'll look in verse 20. The writer says this, you will restore my life, what? Again, again. The ESV says you will revive me again. This means he's done it before, and he can be trusted to do it again. Continuing on in the same verse, from the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. Verse 23 goes on and says, and my soul also, which you have redeemed. Clearly, this is a picture of resurrection, resuscitation, and restoration. We can count on the three R's. We want it to happen immediately, and it probably won't. Most of the time, it happens eventually, sometime during the course of our life, but sometimes it may be ultimately, and ultimately means when we join our Heavenly Father in heaven. 
You know, we ask the question, we have all asked, why, Lord? All of us. Or why me? And sometimes because, again, of that isolation. First of all, don't isolate yourself. Don't go somewhere other than to your Christian family to worship, to those around you that you will speak the truth in those seasons of life. Did you know the word why, such as why, Lord, and why me, is found over 500 times in the Bible? We're in good company if you've ever asked that question, but really, if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, the question we should ask is, why not? Why not? When we surrender our lives, we give him the proxy for the time that we have remaining on this earth. He's free to do with it whatever he wants to do. He is what? Our master. We are what? We are his servants. Paul, the apostle, might have suffered more than all of us in this room combined. And yet he says this, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope, and that hope will never put us to shame. The writer of this psalm declares, as for me, I will always have hope. The word translated hope in this verse, I want you to know, it means a long and patient waiting in spite of delays and disappointments. We've been there, have we not? If we trust in God, then the trials of our life will work for us, not against us, and they will lead to glory. As Christ followers, we need a new perspective on storms. We need to apply the verses that we've heard quite frequently and maybe memorized, such as Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. That means that the storms might seem bad, but in reality, there's something good about storms. There's a purpose. And I want you to know, too, just because you experience pain does not necessarily mean that you're outside of God's will. It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There's five types of storms if you look at them and break them down. And the first one is protecting storms, storms that protect us. You know, when seasoned sailors are fearful, then you know the storm's bad. And that's exactly what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000. Then he dispatched his apostles and he said, hey, we're going to get in this boat, cross the Sea of Galilee, and get to the other side. He did not say, hey, let's get in the boat because we're going to drown. I doubt if anybody would have gotten in that boat. But here's the key thing about that. He did not promise calm waters. What did he promise? That they would arrive safely to the other side. And rough waters is exactly what they experienced that night. But it was a protecting storm for his disciples because after he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make Jesus king. He was protecting them from themselves because if he was made king and he was ruled the way that they wanted to, he would, they would have been his right-hand men. They would have been at the forefront of the adulation, the praise, the power. He was protecting his disciples from that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you looked back and said, thank God I did not get what I thought I wanted? I know I have. It's not a maybe. It's a fact that many times we do not get what we desire because the Lord is protecting us from unintended consequences. We might think we can handle some things, but God knows us better than we know ourselves. 
You know, look no further than the lottery. All of us at one time or another have said we'd like to hit the lottery, and we'd tithe on it if we do, right? <laughs> but have you read... But have you read the tragic stories of some of the people after they hit the lottery and how they have professed, I wish I would have never hit the lottery? Maybe it's why in Proverbs we read this, the rich can pay a ransom for their lives, but the poor won't even get threatened. Maybe it's a blessing that you've never received the threat. You know, my car will never be broken into. Don't go out there, don't go out there to do it just to have fun today. It's 155,000 miles, the paint's fading on it, you know, maybe peeling back and so forth, it's dirty, and, you know, the rear directional signal cover has been broken off. I could have a million dollars in the trunk, and it's probably about as safe as Fort Knox. I think I would look good in Magnum P.I.'s red Ferrari. I really do. <laughs> I would like the Lord to challenge me with that, and... Uh, my uh, assistant Jennifer made this slide. My hair even got less gray. Did you notice that in there? But alas, it probably is not to be. The second storm is perfecting storms. First is protecting, second is perfecting. We see it in two places. First of all, we get to see God's perfection in the storm. Like at no other time. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says this, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I get to see the perfect God in work in these storms. Secondly, we get to see the perfection taking place in us. God allows hardship to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, storms produce perfect transformation. Number three, correcting storms. We mess up. Self-inflicted wounds, right? There's two types. We either go in the wrong direction or we're going at the wrong time. Wrong direction, the perfect example is Jonah. I mean, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and he did a 180, okay? He went where? To the sea. And of course, we know the storms ensued. And it wasn't until he was cast overboard, maybe a thrust in the right direction, that the winds subsided. Wrong timing. There's many examples in Scripture more than one related to the father of our faith, it says, Abraham. We're very familiar. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, and chapter 17, verse 4 in Genesis says, you're going to be the father of a great nation, but he and Sarah didn't wait for that time to occur. They took matters into their own hands, and because of their decisions back then, we still have the division in the family in the Middle East today. Wait for the Lord is the lesson we are to learn. Just because God has revealed to you that this is something he wants you to do doesn't mean that it's supposed to be done right then and right there. The fourth storm is projecting storms. As in, projecting Christ to others or the Lord being illuminated, illuminated through our life. Lazarus is a great example. 
Christ was verified as the Son of God by doing something that could not be done. It was projected onto many, and many that did not care for to see that projection. Others must see how you batten down the hatches during the storm to witness that the anchor upon which you rely is 100% dependable. Drama draws attention. The greater the drama, the larger the audience. See, storms enhance visibility. You know, you etch a name on a tombstone, and it will be remembered for as long as the people that had contact with us live. When we pass away, the lifespan of those that had contact with us will remember us. And the moment the last one passes away, approximately 60 to 75 years after we pass away, we'll be remembered no more. But you etch the, the face, the profiles of four presidents on a mountainside, it will be remembered as long as people exist and as long as the mountain exists. The thing that I want you to know is this, is that our story can be one for the ages. Whatever you're going through, it can far out seed our memory. They might not remember our name, but they'll hear the story. It can be an epitaph etched in the hearts and lives of those that we come in contact with and those we don't. It can leave an everlasting mark because storms carve out legacies. I think about Dewan Miller. Dwan was a young man that I had recruited out of uh, Battleground High School in, um, outside of Vancouver, Washington, on the other side of the Columbia River from Portland. And Dwan, the amazing thing about him, you're seeing the picture right now, is this. I mean, in spite of everything, what Dwan went through was when we were recruiting him, you'd think just from a normal resume that this is a guy that was a no-brainer. Six, three and a half, 185, very athletic. He was a state on the starter on the state champion basketball team for his high school as a junior. Then that spring, he ended up being uh, leading the league in batting. And then that next fall, he led the state of Washington in rushing. I still, and our coaching staff was not convinced, so I went and watched him play a basketball game. In the first 90 seconds, somebody drove for a layup. He got up so far above that rim and knocked the ball out of uh, the air. It was extremely impressive. Then he stole the ball a couple of seconds later, drove the length of the court, and slam dunked it. And as you can see, the amazing thing is, Dewan only had one arm. His left arm had been amputated at the elbow shortly after birth because the umbilical cord had been wrapped around his arm so that it was basically undeveloped and useless. Some people saw that as a handicap, not Dewan. I read recently an article that said of all the great athletes in Boise State history in all sports, the one this author said that he remembered more than any other was guess who? Dewan Miller. Because of what he projected in the midst of the storm. The fifth and final one is directing storms. Directing storms. You know, when the apostle Paul was being transported as a prisoner to Rome, they encountered a storm. In, in verse 14 of Acts 27, it reads, Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. Now, but I want you to really focus on is the next verse. The very next verse says this. This chapter in Acts concludes, excuse me, it says, The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. Now, 
It could not go where? Where it had intended, where it thought it was supposed to go. So what happened? So we gave way to it, and we were driven along. So the chapter in Acts concludes with the words, and everyone reached land safely. Maybe there's a storm that you've encountered or are encountering that's intended to direct you to a different port via a different route. If we're resisting today, give way to the Lord. Allow Him to guide your path. Like those that accompanied Paul in his vessel, you will arrive safely. For me, there were two particular storms that led me here to Southwinds. In my last year as a head football coach at a Division I FCS school, it's a faith-based university, so I would give each year a state-of-the-program report to my direct report. And in that, I would include, of course, an aspect of the spiritual component of our program. And I was very pleased to report in my last year that 14 young men on our team accepted Christ as their personal Savior that fall. In fact, 12 of them did at the conclusion of one practice. The Lord put upon my heart to share the gospel message to them that day, and the Spirit did the work. I was privileged to take part in some of the baptisms of those young men. And when I gave it to the person that was my supervisor, he said, remove that from the report. The, the higher-ups at the university are really not interested in that. Well, that gave me cause to stop and think. How do I want to spend my time, the time that I have remaining, whatever that may be? Just a few weeks later, I resigned my position. But I've never shared that story till today. Then I leave the secular world and I go out to a church. I become executive director at a church. I have 63 people at this church under me in the organizational hierarchy. This is a large organization. I answer to the senior pastor, but then the lay leadership, the lay council came to me and approached me. And one of the things they didn't care for in my leadership style was that I quoted the Bible. I quoted the Bible as I wrote in the newsletter. I quoted the Bible as examples of whatever I was sharing in the weekly staff meetings that we had. In fact, they went as far as to say, you sound too much like a pastor. My wife and I assessed that situation, and I'm pleased to be a pastor at Southwinds Church today. When it comes to storms, we should not ask why. We should proclaim but. And that's what this writer did. We admire the psalmist. He says this, but as for me, in verse 14, because it's a strong statement of courage and commitment, but as for me, it reminds me of Joshua. You know, in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord. Man. That's the type of man of God that we want to be, a woman of God that we're called to be. The writer goes on and says, but you are my strong refuge. Note, too, the pivotal effect of the phrase, but you. It turns attention from him. It turns attention from the circumstances. It's not an escape from reality, but to reality. And the reality is God can be trusted. This writer knew that man's strength diminishes with old age, but God's strength does not. The psalmist did not speak of the, only of the loss of physical and mental strength, but also the potential loss of spiritual strength. See, not every believer grows stronger as he grows older. It's got to be a concerted effort. 
The Bible is filled with examples of those who began strong and finished weak through sin. David sinned against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Pastor Chris Martinez shared that just a couple weeks ago. When did he do that? In his mature years. Solomon was drawn away to idolatry in his later years. King Asa's trust in God greatly declined as he became of old age. In fact, there's more examples of, in Scripture of men that began strong, considered faithful, fading in latter years, than unfortunately there are of men finishing strong. This person was greatly concerned about the burdens of old age and wanted to end well. And should that not be our quest today, to end well? And you might be fairly young. There's different uh, age demographics in here, of course. And I pray that you have all the time in the world, like many of us thought when we were young. I hope that that's the case. But we should all pay attention to the wise words of the late great evangelist, Billy Graham. He was asked this question. What surprises you most about life? His response it's brevity. And Dr. Graham lived to his mid-90s, if not latter 90s. As I've grown older, you know what I've come to believe? I've come to believe that the Lord has instituted a weaning process, so we desire less and less of this world, and we desire more and more of heaven. To finish strong, we must continue in him one day at a time. When we continue in him, the psalmist reminds us what he will continue to do. Verse 21, you will increase my greatness. Now this is speaking to our moral greatness. And it refers to promotion to greater levels of service, both here on this earth and in heaven. See, we have actions to take, we have duties to fulfill, and we've got a time frame in which to do it. And like the Lord, we too are to be on the job 24-7, 365. There is no retirement for a Christ follower. Our retirement is heaven. If you're in a storm today, let me encourage you by reminding you of the words that this writer, of this writer once more, you will comfort me again. You will restore to life, me to life again and lift me up from the depths of this earth again and again and again. This psalmist looked all around. He looked at his past. He looked at his present. He looked at his future. He looked at his enemies. He even looked to the depths of the earth. But it was when he looked up and realized that God's righteousness reaches to the heavens that he left his worries to the Lord and he grew in confidence. What a great example for us to follow. You're like the captain of a ship that's trying to steer to his port. There's choppy waters at times. Maybe our vision's obscured. The mist has become a dense fog and the Lord is the lighthouse beacon that we often sing about. He's there shining a light, illuminating protection for us and guiding us to that dock. And we will be protected during our voyage and to the end of it. Although there will be troubles and calamities, we will hope continually, praise you more and more, and tell of your righteous acts all day long because you have ransomed our lives. Those are some of the lessons from Psalmist 
who wrote Psalm 71. And we'll talk more about them next week. The Lord be praised for his help. The Lord be praised for his protection continually. Let us pray.